morning. Hey, before we dive into the message, I got a couple of things that I would love to do with you, if that's okay. I was thinking this morning as we were worshiping down here, uh, I, just, I just feel like we need to tell our worship team and our band and our crew what a phenomenal job they do and how much we appreciate the way that they lead us in worship every single week. It's pretty, pretty remarkable, and it's okay if you're spoiled as long as you appreciate it. So we are ridiculously spoiled musically and in worship, and I can tell you behind the scenes, their hearts are better than their chops. I mean, they're just, they're just great people and easy to be with and easy to work with, and that is not always the case in the worship team in the church. But that's a whole other sermon series. I'll do that another time. I've got a really close friend who said his theory is that when Satan fell from heaven, he fell into the choir loft. I, I don't know if that's true, but there's a lot of evidence to support it. Um, also, I want to let you know about a couple of things. First of all, this year as a church, as Derek alluded to just a second ago, we are, we are bringing church back. And uh, part of how we're doing that as a church, yeah, it's exciting. Part of how we're doing that is making sure that we kind of have our arms around who is Lake Hills Church. So you should have gotten an email saying, are you a part of the Lake Hills Church family? And if you haven't, you've already answered that. Thank you so much. If you've gotten it and you haven't answered, please let us know. We want to know who's the flock and who, who is Lake Hills Church. But if you haven't gotten an email like that, that means that we don't have a current email address for you. So you can go to lhc.org connect and let us know your email address. We never farm those out. We try to be very judicious about how many emails we send. How many of you don't get enough email? I didn't think so. So we're trying to be really careful about that. But we do like to know who is the family of faith? It's kind of a big deal. The Bible says know the condition of your flock, and in order to know the condition, you got to know the flock. So we're asking you to help us out with that through the month of February. Also, as a church, we have got a phenomenal opportunity coming up at the end of this month. As a matter of fact, the next to last day of February, February 27th. Everybody say it's the 27th. The 27th. On February the 27th, we are hosting... The Fearless Mom Conference. It's going to be an amazing, amazing online conference. So what I'm telling you that is if you are a mom, if you know a mom, if you want to help a mom out, let them know you need to go and register. Just go to fearlessmom.com. There is a tab that says conference. That'll get you to the right place. You can register. I'm just telling you right now, it's going to be Phenomenal, led by the original fearless mom that I get to kiss goodnight every night, Julie Richard. But also this year we have incredible guests that Julie's lined up. Catherine Lowe from The Bachelor is gonna be here. She's the wife of Sean Lowe. They live in the Dallas-Fort Worth area. She's gonna be a part of this. Also, David Thomas and Sissy Goff. David and Sissy are from Nashville, Tennessee, and they are nationally renowned family therapists who have an incredible podcast called Raising Boys and Girls. If you were a part of this conference last year, you heard David speak. He's phenomenal. He's bringing his partner in the ministry, Daystar Ministries, Sissy Goff. They're going to be a part of this. It's going to be an amazing, amazing conference. And you need to be a part of this. If you're a part of the Lake Hills Church family, if you're a mom, if you're an expectant mom, if you're a, a seasoned veteran mom, you need to be a part of the Fearless Mom Conference on Saturday, February 27th. 
How'd that do? Okay, just check it. Take the points wherever you can get them. But it is going to be a phenomenal, and it's also a great opportunity to introduce somebody, maybe who wouldn't come on a Sunday morning, to introduce them to Christ, to introduce them to the life of the church and what this is all about. It's, it's an amazing deal. So that's on February the 27th. Also, if you haven't answered the email about the Lake Hills Church family, let us know that, and we would greatly, greatly appreciate it. I want to start today by making a statement that for some of you will be obvious. Here's the statement. The longer you follow Christ, the more regularly and the more frequently you see his creative genius. The longer you follow Christ, the more frequently and the more regularly you see his creative genius. Now, last weekend, as I was preparing for the sermon, in what I thought was a last minute addition, God kind of brought something to my mind that was out of left field. It hadn't been any part of my preparation, hadn't been any part of the prayer, but I felt like this was something God wanted me to include in the service and in the sermon, kind of a last minute ad. If you were a part of that service, whether online or in the room, you know that I mentioned to you four things, four things to keep in mind as you read the Bible, as you engage with God personally, four things to keep in mind. We'll, we'll put them on the screen here. Number one, the first thing to always remember is God is God. God is God and we are not. So that's an important thing to keep in mind as you read the Bible. God is God, we are not. not. Number two, God is good. As you read the Bible, particularly as you come to a passage of Scripture that may be challenging to understand or may be challenging some presuppositions that you have about who God is or how he ought to operate, just never forget that he is good. The Bible says, taste and see that the Lord is good. Number three, God is just. God is always just. Whenever God makes a judgment call about a person or a situation, you can know that God's judgment is always just. It is always the right call because he's God. He has wisdom and knowledge and insight that we can't even comprehend. And then the fourth thing that I mentioned to you is always good to keep in mind is that God is transcendent. That God is transcendent. Essentially that he is infinite to our very finite human capacity to understand. So there will always be parts of God that we don't understand or we can't, you know, put in a neat and tidy box. How many of you love HGTV? Can I just see a show of hands if you're an HGTV fan? I'm, I'm a huge fan of the before and after. All of the T, I like, I like to see the before and the after. So if I could watch the last three minutes of every HGTV show, I'd be in. But all that nonsense that goes on before and, you know, I'm not into that. But I love... Every single time, this is, this, is what, this is a universal on HGTV. There is always an open floor plan and neat, clean lines. An open floor plan and neat, clean lines. And I think there's something inside of us that, man, we like open floor plans and neat, clean lines. Well, when it comes to a relationship with God, you're not always gonna have an open floor plan and neat, clean lines. You cannot box God up or in. 
You don't want a God that you can box up. God is transcendent. So those are the four things I mentioned to you last week. But this week, on Thursday, I heard the brakes in my mind screech to a halt. And I realized that I forgot one. I should have given you five things to remember about God. The fifth thing that I'm going to ask you to remember with the first four that I introduced last week, God is love. God is love. Now, no matter where you are in your spiritual journey, you cannot grow in your relationship with God. You can't even begin to enter into a relationship with God without understanding that God is love. That is, that is central to the core of his character, his nature, his personality. And it's these five things that we are going to see in full HD color as we come to Genesis chapter three this week. For the last few weeks, we've been taking kind of a deep dive look at the beginning chapters of the entire Bible, Genesis one, two, and three. We're looking at the, the origins of really everything. And if Genesis chapter one and two sets the stage and shows us God's intent, God's intentionality in creation, specifically creation of you and me, of humanity, then Genesis chapter three actually shows us man's rejection of his intent and intentionality, man's rebellion against his intent and intentionality. And therefore, it's Genesis chapter three that really sets the stage for the rest of scripture, the rest of this gospel narrative of recovery, redemption, restoration of who God is and what he is doing in and through the course of human history. If you've got your Bibles, I want you to look in Genesis chapter 3. And I'm just going to tell you, as you're looking up Genesis 3, you really need to remember those five things because today is one of those passages. Today is one of those topics that if you read it just kind of superficially and you hide your plane through it, you're going to miss so, so much. So I'm gonna ask you to kind of put on your, your, you know, your, your tight brain cap and really think this through with me. Let, let's go through this together, not only intellectually, but also emotionally, also psychologically, to, to read through Genesis chapter three and, and see if it doesn't have the ring of authenticity. Here, here's how the Bible describes this. I'm going to start with just verses one through three. Now, the serpent was the shrewdest of all the wild animals the Lord God had made. One day he asked the woman, did God really say you must not eat the fruit from any of the trees in the garden? Of course we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, the woman replied. It's only the fruit from the tree in the middle of the garden that we are not allowed to eat. God said you must not eat it or even touch it. If you do, you will die. Now, I don't know about you, but I kind of feel like if we're going to take a deep dive, you know, honest look at this, we kind of have to deal with the fact right up front that we've got a talking snake. I mean, I, I know you're probably familiar with the, the scripture and you've probably seen artistic representations and, and images of it, but I think... 
I think you've got to really and truly kind of step into this and go, whoa up. A talking snake? What? But I think it's important for us to understand that Genesis chapters 1, 2, and 3, really the opening passages of the Bible, are written as poetic narratives. Now, now, I just want you to understand that I'm right now wading into some shark-infested waters. So I would appreciate your prayers as we go into this next part of the sermon, but please bear with me for a second. To say that it's poetic narrative does not mean it's not true. The Bible is true from Genesis through Revelation. It is truth conveyed supernaturally from God, supernaturally protected by God in the translation process. But don't ever fall into the trap argument of, you don't think the Bible's literally true, do you? How many of you have ever heard that argument before? Okay, listen, let me tell you how to handle it. This is so easy. If anybody ever says, you don't think the Bible's literally true, just kind of go, no, not all of it. What? Thought you were a Christian, man. Listen, just chillax for a second. Think about this. Jesus himself said that he would destroy the temple and build it back in three days. Now, that's not literally true. Jesus was using poetic imagery to convey what would happen in and through his crucifixion and resurrection. He didn't literally tear down the temple and build it back in three days. He was using poetic language to convey eternal spiritual truth. God does this over and over and over again. The Bible says that God is like a mother hen who collects his chicks under his wing. God ain't chicken. But it's an image that is used to convey a transcendent, infinite God to decidedly non-transcendent, finite humans. So we don't think the Bible from Genesis to Revelation is 100% literal, no, but we do believe the Bible is 100% without error true. It is the truth of God for life and living with God. So what I'm telling you is God is conveying here in Genesis chapter 3 using this poetic language. This, this is something that C.S. Lewis helped us to understand. C.S. Lewis was a fascinating cat. He was a lifelong atheist, a scholar of the highest order. He taught English literature and mythology at Oxford. That's in England. Later on, he taught at Cambridge. I mean, he was fairly bright. And as a matter of fact, it was the power of poetic imagery and what Lewis referred to as myth that led him into a relationship with Christ. It was the power of the story of Christianity. This is what C.S. Lewis said. He said, the story of Christ, that's the Bible, the story of Christ is simply a true myth. A myth working on us in the same way as the others, but with this tremendous difference that it really happened. It really happened. You see, in this sense, in the way that C.S. Lewis uses the word mythology, it doesn't mean that it's fictional. It just means that it conveys truth. If you've ever read the epic poem, The Charge of the Light Brigade, that is a poem that describes a historical event. 
Genesis chapter 3 is part of a poem that describes a historical event. The reality is that Satan did in fact tempt humanity. And humanity did in fact fall. This is the original sin. So it's imperative that we understand what's going on here. Doesn't mean that the Bible's not true. The Bible is absolutely true. Turn to your neighbor and tell them it's real. But it's going to use a lot of literary devices to convey this truth. And this is one of them. The serpent was the shrewdest of all the animals. Notice what he did here. Notice how Satan entered the picture and began to infect humanity. Did God really say that you can't eat from any of those trees? I mean, Satan is demonstrably evil, but he's brilliant. Look at what he does. He didn't refute God's word. He didn't refute the will of God. He didn't refute the holiness of God. He just raises a question. He just asks a question. And in the original Hebrew, that word really, did God really say? It is an implied sneer. It's that, it's that kind of, I mean, did God really say that you can't eat from any of these trees? Is, is he so narrow-minded as to, are you seriously, do you? Does that not have the ring of authenticity? Isn't that kind of the world that you and I live in right now? You, you, don't, you don't really believe all this hocus-pocus mumba. Do you? It's exactly where Satan began with Eve. Did God really say? It, it wasn't that, that Satan started by walking up to Eve and saying, you should reject God. He just, he just wanted to, he just raised a question. He just, just wanted to just kind of begin to, to plant seeds of doubt. That, that's all it was. It was just, just a little bit of doubt. And, and Eve answers him. She said, no, no, no. We can eat from any of them except the one that's in the very center, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Because God said in Genesis chapter 2, if you eat of it, you will die. But look at what Eve, Eve kind of adds some things in this. She says, God said that we could eat of any of them except that one, but he said if we touch it or eat of it, we will die. So Eve kind of starts making some stuff up. Have you ever made some stuff up? Anybody in the room, like you get asked a question that you don't know the answer to, it's like, you know what? I'm sure that they're going to be there. Yeah, oh yeah, I'm sure. Yeah, oh yeah. It's exactly what Eve was doing. She's just making stuff up. Be very, very careful when you're quoting God about adding anything to what God has said or about taking anything away from what God has said. God said, just, just stay away from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Everything else is yours for the taking. I've created it for you to have dominion over. I want you to enjoy it all. The Bible says in Proverbs chapter eight that God delights in creation. Think about that for a second. God delights in creation. You know, you and I wake up in Austin, Texas. On a day like today, it's 39 degrees. It's kind of winter, but kind of not. The sun is out, and, and, and you're just like, oh, we're in Austin. I just delight in that creation. 
There, there, there are actually still some people who are in San Francisco. It's so sad. There are like five of them. But, but there's this delight in creation. And, and, and Satan starts to just cast some doubt on the delight. Did, did God really, is that what God's up to? But look at how the conversation continues. Verses four and five. You won't die, the serpent replied to the woman. God knows that your eyes will be opened as soon as you eat it and you will be like God, knowing both good and evil. Now the conversation has taken a turn. You won't die? What, what, what Satan does so masterfully is he just, he just twists the truth. He just, he just takes what God has said and goes, no, look at it this way. And the ultimate lie here is that God is holding out on us. That God's holding out. No, 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 you, you misunderstood. He told you that because he doesn't want you to have everything he has. He, he doesn't want you to have the insight and the wisdom. He doesn't he want you to see the world like he sees it. If you will eat of this tree, I'm telling you, that is when you're going to really start living. I got to tell you, the more I read Genesis 3, the more I think it's almost like God knows us. I mean, it just, it's so true. How many times have you found yourself in the throes of temptation? And, and, and sometimes, sometimes we're actually consciously aware of it. And we're like, I know that God says, don't do this, but man, I want to do this. Or God says, do this, but I don't want to do this. So, and we're in the throes of temptation and we decide consciously to rebel against what God has said, believing that there's actually more to be had than what God has offered to us. That, that's what, Satan is so skillful, man, he's brilliant. You've got to understand our enemy. You've got to understand how he comes at us. And I know some of you are like, so Mac, let me, let me ask you a question. You, you've, you've addressed the talking snake thing, okay, but, the whole Satan thing, the devil thing, really? Well, again, God says biblically Satan is real. As a matter of fact, Jesus himself, Jesus who walked on the earth like you and I walk on the earth, Jesus went toe to toe with Satan himself. Jesus was tempted. On the heels of a 40 day fast, 40 days, Satan comes to Jesus to tempt him, and, and he begins by tempting Jesus through his appetite. Satan knew that Jesus was vulnerable, that he was 40 days, 40 days. Some of us look at like whole 30, and we're like, whoa, man, I just crushed it, whole 30. Jesus had been fasting for 40 days and 40 nights, and Satan said, you know what? Because you're the son of God, just turn these stones into bread. Boy, that, that would have been my weak spot. I'll be honest with you. I like me some bread. I believe in a gluten-full diet. 
But Jesus said, no, 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 no. Man does not live by bread alone, but on every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And so Satan said, well, okay, so, so appetite, way to go. But how about this one? Man, if I could take you, if, I, if you could just see all of the glories of the world, I'll give them to you. And Jesus said, no, no, I'm not going to do that because the Bible says to worship the Lord your God only. And Satan goes, okay, okay, I'll tell you what. Just let's, let's go to the top of the temple in Jerusalem and you throw yourself off and command the angels to come and rescue you. Prove that you're the son of God. And Jesus said, no, the scriptures say that you should not put the Lord your God to the test. You see, Jesus had an answer for every, every temptation of Satan. And the answer was always from the word of God. Always. So that's why we study scripture. That's why we hide it in our hearts. We make it a lamp to our feet and a light to our path because we absolutely will get tempted, period, hard stop. And you see here Satan with Eve in the Garden of Eden. He goes, no, 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 no. God's holding out on you. There's more to this life. This is the first example of coveting in the world. This was the first time that a human being said, I don't have everything I need to be happy. Prior to this moment, Adam and Eve had walked in fellowship with God, lived by the provision of God, and enjoyed the, the love of God perfectly. And here Eve, and then Adam, they, they begin to wonder, is God really good? Is God really and truly everything he says he would be? Look at what happens next. The woman was convinced. She saw that the tree was beautiful and its fruit looked delicious and she wanted the wisdom it would give her. So she took some of the fruit and ate it. Then she gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it too. At that moment, their eyes were opened and they suddenly felt shame at their nakedness. So they sewed fig leaves together to cover themselves. Isn't that tragic? I mean, just, just the brutal, brutal shame of the moment. They, they thought the fruit would satisfy, that it would fulfill. But instead, their eyes were opened to shame, to regret. It was the loss of innocence. Parents, you understand what this is like. You, you know when, when our kids are coming up and, and we, have to, we have to explain some things of this fallen and broken world to them that we don't want them to understand or know about yet, but because it's come to the front door, we've got to have that conversation. And she's like, oh, the loss of innocence. And this, this shame it's tragic. But I think it's important for us to understand this, this biblical template of temptation. Because what Eve and Adam experienced in Genesis chapter 3, you and I experience in Austin 2021. This, this template of temptation, it starts with a distraction. We get distracted 
from what God has called us to, from, from our mission, from our purpose in life. Prior to this, Adam and Eve had been tending the garden. They had been stewarding God's created order and goodness. But Eve, for some reason, she, she found time for this conversation with Satan. Now, you may read Genesis chapter 3 and go, man, the Bible's kind of hard on Eve. But think about this. Where the heck was Adam? Where's Adam? Bro, get in the game. He's nowhere to be found. Eve is there doing spiritual, eternal warfare with Satan. And Adam's just like strolling around the garden. It's pitiful. Men at our best engage. We engage. We don't hide. We engage. At least Eve was in the game. Now, she wasn't playing particularly well, but she was in the game. Starts with a distraction. Then it just moves into a debate. If Satan showed up at your office, as you start to kind of harmlessly flirt with that coworker that you're not married to, if Satan showed up with, a, with horns and a pitchfork and a red cape and said, yeah, 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 talk to her, talk to her, talk to her. You'd be like, man, get away from me. What are you doing? No, he doesn't do that. It's a distraction. And then it's a debate. Well, I mean, she understands me. Think, you know, things at home are, are just, you know, but, and so it, this debate begins. And, and Eve starts to just engage in the debate, not taking God at his word. The debate leads to doubt. And the doubt creeps in and you start to believe maybe God is holding out on me. Maybe, maybe there is more to this life than what God wants to give me. And so I start to doubt the goodness of God that leads to deception. The ultimate deception that I can find wisdom. I can find life. I can find meaning apart from God. Please hear me. That is always, say always. always. That is always a lie from the pit of hell itself. Jesus said, the thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy, but I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. The fullest life you will ever know is in a relationship with Jesus Christ, period, hard stop. There is no other life other than the life of Christ. Everything else is a deception. When we give into the deception, that leads us to disorder destruction, devastation. And then the Bible says that their eyes were opened and they were ashamed of their nakedness. I did some homework because the last step in this template of temptation is disgrace, disgrace. And I want you to think about the word disgrace. It's actually an old, old English term that means a disfiguring. You see, Adam and Eve disfigured 
the image of God that they were created to bear. It's this, this disfiguring, and it's in this disfiguring that they find their shame. Now, somebody I know, somebody here, maybe online, you're thinking, is there any good news? I mean, because like so far, this has kind of been a doggy downer. <laughs> and, and I get it. But look at verse 8. Verse 8 in Genesis chapter 3. Where am I? When the cool evening breezes were blowing, the man and his wife heard the Lord God walking about in the garden. So they hid from the Lord God among the trees. Verse 9. Then the Lord God called to the man, Where are you? Don't, Don't miss that. This is God Almighty, who, by the way, knows exactly where Adam and Eve are. He's not asking for directions. he's, He's in the garden for this time of fellowship that we understand was common. And Adam and Eve hid because they were ashamed. And God pursued them. Man, that's all you need to know about God. It, I mean, that, that there is more, but that tells you the heart of God. He pursued them. He knew where they were. He knew how they were. He knew they were ashamed. And he went after them. God in Genesis 3 is exactly the same as God in the New Testament. He is a pursuing lover. He is looking for the lost sheep. He he is coming after, he wants restoration. He wants reconciliation. He wants redemption. And And he just asks, where are you? Where are you? Now, there, there's, a whole, there's a whole nother part to the story that we don't have time for today. But I want to bring it to that point, to that moment where God says, where are you? And I want to ask you to bow your heads with me for just a brief moment. Because that's the most important question anyone ever answers. Where are you? Adam and Eve, to their credit, answer. You can go and read for yourself. They don't answer particularly well, but they answer. They re-engaged with God. Now, I don't know where you are this morning. In your personal, spiritual journey. But I do know that God created you with intent and intentionality. On purpose, with a purpose. 
And I know that in my life, my sin ruptured that relationship. But that Jesus Christ went to the cross in order to do for me what I couldn't do for myself, to do for you what you can't do for yourself. And that is, he paid the penalty for your sin. He paid the penalty for mine. And when he did, in fact, rise on the third day from the dead, he did so with the promise of a new life for anyone who would follow him. The problem of sin runs deep. We're born into this. It's a part of who we are. It's in our spiritual DNA from Adam and Eve. But as deep as the problem of sin runs, the river of grace and truth is deeper still. And Jesus Christ invites you, like he invited me, to participate, to collaborate in that river of grace and truth. If you're here today and you've never stepped into that, we wanna give you the opportunity to do that. Maybe you're watching online. Maybe it's not even a Sunday morning. You're, you're just watching because you landed here randomly. I would suggest to you it's not random. And I just invite you or anyone in this room to pray a prayer like this in your own words, talking to God, just say silently, Jesus, I need you. I confess my sin, all of it. I recognize that template of temptation. So I confess my sin in order to claim and receive your forgiveness, your grace, and I will follow you from this moment forward. I pray this prayer in your name. Just for a second, I'm gonna ask you to remain with your heads bowed. And as a church, we wanna help with what's next. This is just the beginning for you. And in just a minute, we'll let you know how that kind of proceeds and how we can help with that. But very briefly, if that was your prayer, would you just raise your hand quietly? Quietly, but unmistakably. Just raise your hand and hold it up over your head for a second as a statement of your commitment to Christ. And know that as a church, as a family of faith with you, we celebrate that and we honor it with you. And as you put your hands down, we're gonna put our hands together just to tell you, welcome home. Welcome home.